Pani's Bible was the last um, uh, event here that was in partnership with the Writers' Festival. Uh, before I go any further, I want to acknowledge, and it's my uh, pleasure to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation. We're gathering on their land, as we all know, on their ancestral land. Whilst we celebrate uh, literature and writing, but we also challenge China, uh, analysing and exploring its complexities. It sounds terrible, challenging China, but that's really what our guest of honour has been doing. Um, uh, uh, by the way, a Chinese Bible was curated by Dr. Claire Roberts, and Claire did a wonderful, wonderful job. Uh, and really, it's uh, Nick. Uh, a, a short story of Nick's, Nick Joseph's, was incorporated in this catalogue, which won these two prizes. But uh, Claire was the one who really put the catalogue together. So, Nick, will you tell her? I acknowledge her, and I'll write to her as well. Now, I'm going to introduce Nick, and then um, now let me see if I can pronounce it. I haven't had much time to practice. Zhu, G U N. Quite good. Mm, quite good. Quite good. Quite good. <laughs> <laughs> I rather it was excellent. <laughs> <laughs> So I did my best with no tutoring. Um, Claire has always promised to give me lessons in Chinese pronunciation, but we've never got that far. Uh, but I, So I'll introduce our two uh, speakers, and then really I'm going to leave the conversation to them, unless they include me, or I, I feel absolutely compelled to say something. And I, I'm, I'm, I will hold myself back. But firstly, as an introduction for uh, Professor Nick Joes, um, we go back such a long way, Nick and I, really. I could have gone on for an hour about what we've done together uh, and what Nick's done separately goes a, a, a much longer way. But um, we have launched a number of Nick's books at the gallery, and I thought I'd sort of introduce Nick first and foremost as a writer, which he is. And I found an old, uh, or a long time ago, um, invitation, Nick, when I was thinking about this talk. Uh, we launched Original Face here. Do you remember? In the days of Sherman Galleries when we were a commercial gallery and before the days of the foundation. And we've been a not-for-profit foundation for almost 10 years now. This is our ninth year. So, you know, that goes back a long time ago. But one of our greatest fun uh, sort of series of moments together was um, touring an exhibition based on one of Nick's, my, I've read everything Nick's written, but my favourite book still remains The Rose Crossing. And I read it in French and I even almost preferred it in French. I'm sorry, Nick. It was translated. It, it was a it's very beautiful translation and I had read it in English before. Um, it was called à la recherche d'une rose noire in French. Lovely, lovely uh, rendering of this beautiful uh, little jewel-like novel. But what we did in 99-2000, <coughs> so 16 years ago now, is we put together a show from the then commercial Sherman Galleries based on the Rose Crossing and toured it to venues all over Australia and Asia. And uh, we had catalogues in Chinese, simplified and complex characters. We had um, a very complex undertaking that was. 
uh, for us, and we had um, openings in various places. Singapore, I think you came to, Nick, uh, uh, at the Singapore uh, Art Museum. Anyway, it was great fun, and um, it went in Asia to Hong Kong and Singapore, to Brisbane, to Perth, to Sydney. It was terrific. Uh, also, Nick, I don't know how many of you know, but he was the uh, general editor of the Macquarie... What was the official title, Nick? Macquarie Pen. Pen. Uh, anthology. anthology of, of Australian literature. And it made a huge contribution to uh, the academic world. Hi, Jenny. Sit here. A huge contribution to the academic world and to uh, the study of Australian literature. Uh, it was a real a seminal moment, really. <clears throat> and there are really uh, too many other encounters and uh, panels and uh, discussions that we've been involved in in one way or another. But the last thing I want to say about Nick was really, and you'll be interested in this, Zhu Ji Yuan, Zi Yuan, Yuan, Yuan. Um, and that is that it, I really credit Nick with um, bringing me to face-to-face with China, with contemporary China. Uh, coming from South Africa, the East and the Far East, as we used to call it, was very far away. I don't remember ever being offered Chinese studies at university, and I'm sure I wouldn't have thought to take it up from that geographical uh, place in the world. Um, but when I started uh, Sherman Galleries in about 19, uh, a couple of years after the beginning of the gallery in 1988, Nick, you came back from China. Nick arrived at what was then our other space just around the corner from here. Some of you will remember it in Hargrave Street. And if, I said, if quite a few people are nodding vigorously. Um, and said, I've, I've been the cultural attaché in China for the last three or four years. I've just come back and I'd like to share with you what is happening there. And I said, look, I'm not really a very political person and I don't know that I, you know, this is a gallery. And he said, no, no, I mean in contemporary art. I said, is there contemporary art in China? And uh, and he said, very much so. And so there was a pile of catalogues and from that moment on, I went on a journey that's taken me to this moment and will take me beyond for, well, uh, 1988, Eight to now is however many years, almost 30 years. Huh? So it's been a very uh, kind of um, rich journey for me in the sense that I started with no knowledge and I have learned so much. I've read so much literature. I've read so many historical accounts. I've met so many wonderful people. I've learned of so much pain and suffering that I didn't really realize. I knew about the Great Leap Forward. I knew about my father always spoke about China, the starving masses in China and so on, but I didn't know really what had happened through from 49 onwards. Um, so um, 
And I became friends with many Chinese artists and writers, some of whom are here today. Uh, Ai Weiwei, uh, all of these in the early, early days. Sai Go Chung, Zhu Bing, Guan Wei, Arsien, who's here this evening, Jeremy Barme, academics, Claire Roberts, I've mentioned, Linda Javen, Shen Xiaomin, Xiao uh, Jiao Wei, so many, many, many people. This was on the plane coming back, and I, the list could have gone on and on and on. Probably, I don't know, several hundred people, uh, many of whom I've remained very close to. Now I want to talk a little bit about our uh, guest of honor. And I don't know him, obviously, uh, the way I've known Nick. In fact, I've met him for the first time today. But I have read uh, the book. And as far as I could find out, um, this uh, Paper Tiger is the only one of your books translated into English. Am I right? Yeah, because I w was very keen on reading something else and, you know, language made it impossible. Um, I selected you from the writers program list. I get a list every year of the writers from Asia or from the Middle East, uh, including Israel. There are very few writers from Israel, and they're always uh, under enormous pressure, as we can all imagine. Um, and so I invariably go towards Asia, uh, but not always. And so once I get that list, I read the CVs and biographies, and I'm a big reader, and a couple of books, and then I make my selection. So here you are. Um, I couldn't have been more honoured, really, than to have Zhu Zi Yuan accept our invitation. Sometimes the person I select can't come uh, because they're too busy or because they have to go back to wherever they come from. So it's not a given that I select someone and then that person is able to be here. So I was absolutely, absolutely uh, thrilled um, that uh, that the invitation was accepted. I read uh, Paper Tigers. I said they are a series, and uh, Nick and uh, the two will go into this in, in detail. Uh, fairly brief articles or essays, if you like, but most of which uh, deal uh, with China's less than perfect, I'm trying to be very polite here, handling of issues that we take absolutely for granted in Australia. Issues like freedom of the press, issues like the rule of law, things that you would equality before the law, uh, issues like uh, freedom of expression, you can say what you like. Um, and once Ai Weiwei has become a close personal friend over many, many years and really launched SCAF and uh, his description of Zhu uh, Ziyuan as the foremost intellectual of his generation speaks so loudly of his reputation. Uh, you know, nobody can pull the wool over Weiwei's eyes, I don't think, uh, however many people try. So um, I don't know an awful lot about you. So Nick, I'd, would you mind asking some questions about the background and so on, and that way it'll come out, but via you rather than me. So I'm handing over now to the two of you, and thank you all for coming, and I'm delighted to see so many friends in the audience. Thanks. Thank 
So thank you, Jean, and welcome to everyone, a special welcome to Xu Jiyuan. And I just want to thank Jean for actually giving us this very special opportunity to have some time in this relatively comfortable, private environment um, to, to talk to our guest, uh, because he has fascinating things to say. And it's it's really good opportunity here tonight um, to be able to engage um, with him. Um, let me say let me give a little biography of you um, to start with. You can correct me if it's wrong. <laughs> um, you were born in Beijing in 1976, right? Down in Beijing, Jiangsu province. In Jiangsu province, aha. Well, that was one of my, that was a question. And I wanted to ask also where your parents um, come from. Also Jiangsu Jiangsu. province. Yeah, okay. Um, And so, but then you got into um, Beijing University, um, PKU, one of the best universities in China. And did your family move to Beijing by then? So you grew up in Beijing, Beijing, essentially. Okay. Um, You graduated in computer science from Beida. Double E, yeah, kind of engineering electronics. Engineering electronics. So uh, that's interesting because at that time, which you were at university in the 1990s, late. Peking, PKU? Yeah, when were you there? From 1995 until 2000. Yeah, so that was a time when all the smart people were getting into kind of computer science, engineering, electronics, um, because that has been such a big part of the change in China. Um, But then when you graduated, you became a journalist and you worked for Economic Observer, (laughs) Jingji Guangcha Bao, which was one of the um, very important, um, and I would say kind of progressive um, media outlets in China. Um, And more recently, you've been writing a lot for the Financial Times, UK Financial Times, China version in Chinese. Um, And from your writing there, those articles, um, this book has emerged in English um, called Paper Tiger um, Inside the Real China, published in London last year. Um, the book actually won an English pen award. I'm just coming back to pen for a moment, um, which I think assisted with the translation and the publication. It's translated very well into English by Michelle Dieter and Nikki Harmon. Nikki Harmon I know, and she's an excellent translator. I don't know Michelle Dieter, but together they've done a great job. Very colloquial... Um, very relaxed, comfortable translation. Where does Nikki live? She lives in London. In London. Um, I think she's attached to SOAS. Is she um, at the University of London School of um, Oriental and Asian Studies there? Um, and, of course, I'm saying that the translation is relaxed and good to read, but that's probably your writing as well. <laughs> I think better. <laughs> um, And the book contains 80 pieces written over a period from roughly 2007 to last year, 2015. So, you know, the 10 last years of China, engaging with all sorts of things from a very personal perspective, but also a broadly analytical and reflective perspective with humour, with vivid details, 
Um, it, it's a very engaging book, um, I, I found. So congratulations um, on the book. It comes after several books you've published in Chinese in China. Um, I'll give the English names of them. One is called The Totalitarian Temptation. And that is one of your themes through these essays, too, the idea of Actually, totalitarian... Actually, it's, it's my favorite, not this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. um, and more recently, one called An Immature Nation, um, which is an inter interesting title, again, for a book about China, you know, which we think of as having 5,000 years of history. If that's not mature, you know, what is? <laughs> um, so that's just um, some background to the book, um, which is available here tonight, and um, I'm sure you'd be happy to sign copies afterwards if, if people are interested in reading it, and I do seriously recommend it, partly because we in Australia now and in Sydney, we are so involved with China at every level, human, financial, environmental, political, uh, at every level, um, life in Australia and what happens in China are deeply connected. So it's important to know as much as we can. And that's why it's great to have you here tonight. Um, can I just go back to those personal questions? So um, is this your first visit to, to um, Sydney would be Yeah, it's the first time. And uh, before it, I thanks a lot for Jean and uh, Nick, which are <laughs> have done for me, thanks a lot. And also, this is something maybe uh, a bit beyond the topic, because I had a very special feeling towards the Australian. Uh, you mentioned the German Barmy, mm -hmm. because I think one of the Belgium, and he moved here, he, mm -hmm. teach, he taught Chinese here, same lace. Yes. He, yeah, Pierre Rickman. His book influenced me a lot. You know, I remember uh, maybe more than 10 years ago, I read his book, um, uh, Mouse New Clothes and the Chinese Shadow. I'm totally surprised by a foreigner, an outsider, can penetrate Chinese society so sharply, so with lots of humorously and very poetic. So, similarly, then later I met Jeremy Barmy, he's very erudite maybe too erudite sometimes. <laughs> and we become friends in Beijing. He, he, his, his Beijing dialect, very good, even better, better than me, I think, sometimes. <laughs> Fantastic. So we, his book in red, talking about uh, transformation of China after Tiananmen Square mask, oh, the whole 1990s, how China em, uh, embraced the new capitalism, and also still undercurrent uh, the totalitarian regime still going on. I mean, the very bizarre and uh, complicated combination. I think Barmey's book gave me lots of inspiration. So firstly, I have to send to the strong connection between me and the Australian society. And uh, like Nick said, I also bought Nick's book before with his artist friend. They made a, a, a photo album about G.E. Morrison. Mm -hmm. Because I, I, G. Morrison's insight in the late 19th century, early 20th century China also gave me lots of inspiration mm. how the foreigners see your own society. Even, I think Nick mentioned the, the book, uh, the Inside Real China. I always said, even you are an insider, insider, maybe you don't understand your country so much. Maybe sometimes 
The outsider can give you a different perspective. Like we talk about United States, we talk about American democracy. It's a talk well. The French guy gave the best description of the society. Mm. Some French society, maybe from British one. Yeah, I think. Yeah, thank you so much too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, my first time. Yeah, my first time here. Yeah, sorry. Could you don't go back to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Very dangerous situation now. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting that you you start by talking about that the long period of history and looking back to early 20th century China because that is one of the. Um, really strong things about the book, I think, is that there is a, a long historical sense and a broad geographical sense. I mean, you look at the Soviet Union mm -hmm. and what happened there, you look at Eastern Europe, you look at China, and you look at all of this um, with great erudition yourself, but not that it's um, pushed at the reader, but it's just there informing your analysis. So history is important for you as you think about contemporary China. Is that right? I think for me it's very important. It's like a kind of escape, partly escape. Maybe you, you, you tired of, of contemporary, contemporary things, the, the life uh, around you. You try to escape something where. Maybe uh, geographically I can escape to different countries, but mentality I also can escape to the history. And also the other things about history like kind of semi-religion for China because, you know, we don't have the Christian like your country or in China. I think history played a very so important role for the whole society. I mean, if you do in the past, if you go to a big family, they're kind of like family temple. And all your ancestry's name on, on, on a war and lots of things. It, it means they are watching you. Kind of they are watching you behave yourself. Be good to your family. It's like you go to church. The God watching you. So these kind of things. So the history is so important for Chinese society. Even now, it's Nick, I think Nick, you know too much about it. Very much about it. About it. Even during the past century, there are lots of disruption of the history. But if you look under the current into the very I mean, inside of family, you can still feel that history is going on. So it's a very I would say bizarre combination now. Yeah. But you are also quite critical about China forgetting history. Cultural amnesia is one of the phrases yeah. that's used in this book. Yeah. And you think that you know, in some ways, China or the Communist Party, perhaps, uh, is forgetting the lessons of history and that that may be a problem, you know, for the future. It's, it's a very big problem. And I think it's not just a chance question problem. It's a global phenomenon. I think that every time we're facing... Um, uh, besides the totalitarian regime, we can also see that uh, the big uh, technology revolution is... A, a wrong word. I remember uh, uh, two cases I can uh, I can uh, uh, talk about. One case is still from Simon Lace. What his article influenced a lot. I think he remember he he has a uh, European young man went to China in the 1950s. It's the golden age for the Communist Party at the time, and he's so excited to to go to China because he, he found, I'm Belgium just 
less 200 years country is very short term, but China more than 500 years, uh, 5,000 years. I'm so excited to to go there. But when we went to China, uh, went to China, arrived in China, he found that, come on, what happened? Every building, every things he he saw just less than 100 years, even younger than China, because lots of destroy, lots of disruption. So he he tried to find what happened in in China. So after Cultural Revolution, it become worse. But he found that maybe Chinese history was hidden in kind of text. Mm-hmm. Now, even now, we can read a Tang Dynasty, maybe 1,000 years ago, the text we can still read. 2,000 years ago, Confucian, Anilax, still read, we can read. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't happen in the Egypt, in the Greece, mm-hmm. not happened. So this thing happened to me, how to think about history and present. The other uh, case, example I mentioned is like a, a the Poly, like you, you mentioned that we lost memory. Uh, I remember the Polish poet, uh, Miłosz. Miłosz, he won the Nobel Prize. He, 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 I remember he gave a speech about Nobel Prize, uh, win laureate speech about it. He said, today, whole world become faster and faster. And uh, we all learn everything from the TV now. And uh, history become a Everybody lost, seems less lost his, their memories. They, they, they can't talk about the Wartel age, what exactly Wartel age, or the French Revolution, or the after. We, we all mixed them together. Mm-hmm. I think today's whole world is facing the similar things. I mean, the, the Twitter generation, Facebook generation, because all things happened simultaneously. The we don't. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's no timeline anymore. For yeah, no timeline. And not, no. Yeah. So in China, it's, I think that both things happen together. One thing is like Twitter generation. They forget everything. Just something come together. So confused. The other thing is the government, the state, try to surprise lots of memory. Mm. So two things happen together. Mm. So how to fight with it? If you know memory, maybe you are no human being anymore. We, we human being live by our memory, my, our history. Yeah, I mean, sorry. <laughs> Nick, can I just make sure people know who Simon Lays is? This is the teacher in me. Say something. <laughs> yes. No, it, uh, has, it, do people know here? Simon Lays is Pierre Rickmans, who was this Belgian guy who came to... He's no longer alive, am I right? 2014, So uh, about two years ago. And he was the... Well, Nick, you can speak about him much more than I can. Mm -hmm. But it was really through him. uh, He was a a fictional writer, but also an academic. And he, uh, you know, somebody quite special. Nick, you add to that. Yes. Um, he, He began... I mean, he's from Belgium. He went to China first in 1955, I think, as a student and realised that his whole life would be spent um, looking into Chinese culture. He was particularly interested in art, visual art and literature. Um, and he worked in various parts of in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, in Singapore. Um, and by some miracle came to Australia in the 1970s. And at that point, the Belgian government also asked him briefly to go to Beijing as the cultural attaché for Belgium. And that was the, uh, the cultural revolution towards the end. Um, actually, this week is being marked as the 30th anniversary 
this Monday of the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. Fifteenth, fifteenth, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know what that particular date was um, on Monday this week, May sixteenth. Yeah, um, and so and so Simon uh, Pierrickmans went there and saw this, and at that time many people and outside commentators on China thought the Cultural Revolution, what a great idea, you know. <laughs> um, it's, not, it's not a laughing matter. And he saw it for what it was, and he wrote this incredible series of books. Chinese Shadows is one. Um, Chairman Mao's New Clothes is another. Um, and he was attacked by many Western intellectuals and sinologists for that, but he was like a courageous lone voice. Incredible. Um, he writes beautifully. He writes in French. It's translated into English. And then he taught um, in Canberra, in Sydney, um, and he continued a very active intellectual life um, until he died. Um, he became very disillusioned with Australian universities, I have to say, and who can blame him for that? <laughs> That's another story. But, but he was a great, great figure. And even after his death, the way his reputation is just rising and rising um, is, is very moving to behold. I mean, I, I knew him in Canberra. He taught me briefly. Uh, he taught Jeremy Barme. I mean, there's a whole lineage that we're very lucky to have um, thanks to him. Um, and it's it's I, you know it's fascinating that you say you read his work and that it influenced you because I haven't heard that really from a Chinese intellectual. Um, it's just interesting to know how these ideas and these works travel. Circulate, yeah, yes. yeah, mm. yeah. Um, we're going to run out of time, and I don't want to. Um, not get to some of the really key things. Um, just briefly, the book covers that period I mentioned from 2007. So it goes through some of the big moments in recent Chinese history. Um, the Beijing Olympic Games in 2008, um, the earthquake in Sichuan, um, where so many people killed, particularly um, students at schools that were badly built, um, that brought Ai Weiwei in to be very active. Um, then later on, um, the, the internet in China, Alibaba, Jack Ma, the founder of that company, the largest IPO on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, the trial of Bo Xilai um, and the princelings um, and the beginning of purges uh, uh, on corruption. Um, the, the Occupy Central movement in Hong Kong um, in 2014, sometimes called the Umbrella Revolution. So a whole lot of very topical stuff, which we know about, but we don't really know about from a smart um, Chinese perspective. And it, it's just fascinating to read all of that. Um, you don't really have a chance to get onto Xi Jinping in the book, uh, he it was published last year, and I guess it was in production. Um, so I'd be very interested to ask your opinion of of Xi Jinping um, and what's happening now in China, because one of your themes is totalitarianism and how these the DNA of it keeps 
returning, even though China is changing so much, um, and whether you think that's happening now? Wow. wow. <laughs> Don't repeat anything outside this room. It's a, yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's very uh, important, big, and uh, I must be very cautious about question, you know. It's let, maybe, me, maybe, let, yeah. let me get you off the hook by saying that in the forward to this book, mm. you, you say, I, embar- I am embarrassed to think of how ambivalent my views yeah, are. Yeah. So you're a very balanced person. I don't know how to ba- <laughs> not because I'm balanced, it's a part of story. The other story, part of story is I'm not, I'm not brave enough to, to speak out it, you know. Have to be very brave. Uh, no, I can't. I can't. I can't be. Uh, I know the the uh, the point very important you mentioned uh, how to think about the China's change during the past several years. It's um, you know, you mentioned the two thousand eight Olympic game. Maybe there's uh, my friend, uh, friend Professor Feng. Professor Feng, he his generation was influenced by, uh, by the nineteen eighty nine uh, event, the Tiananmen. Massacre event. Uh, for my generation, for the or the younger generation, the biggest event in our time is uh, 2008. You know, during, uh, before 2008, China's uh, change still kind of you can say modernization, maybe a, a old world. You can see the we build our civil society, the market force becomes stronger, stronger, and the state powers retreat, retreating, and the rule of law is built step by step. And you can see maybe individual can feel more sense of freedom and everything can travel a lot. It can speak more. But the 2008 Olympic game, before the game, lots of intellectuals like me, like many of, we imagine maybe the game will be a historical watershed for China history, like maybe like Seoul's Olympic game 1988 or the Japanese or the Tokyo Olympic game in 1964. After two games, two countries become much more freer than before and the people can enjoy much more freedom and the, in, in Seoul, the South Korea make a huge transformation from authoritarian power to democratic power. It's our kind of imagination, hope and also now approved a fantasy. The whole game gave our state, our state, a strong, a strong impetus and a confidence that they did everything. They can achieve anything. And also a new power emerged. Before the, the, the Beijing Olympic game, maybe the party and the, the, the regime still feel a bit nervous about. Maybe the market force is very strong. We, we did a lot of bad things and uh, we need Pay something for the people, give some freedom. But after 2008, the state got new confidence. And even after the game, it's a financial crisis from Wall Street and around the whole world, Western, especially the whole world, the Western world. So the China leader think, okay, I'm the best. Some Western, very irresponsible intellectual said, oh, China can rule the world. So it also give kind of confidence to the confidence to our regime, our government, our leaders. So from the 2008, the things have changed. The state tried to surprise the whole society. 
I just no dialogue anymore. I just give you my words. Follow me. And uh, when 2013, when she got power, the situation became worse and worse. You know, he is a kind of cultural revolution generation. You know, during the cultural revolution, just like Sam Les said, it's an anti-cultural cultural revolution. I, yeah. in, in that period, his generation, lots of internal struggle, lots of fight. They trust kind of strong leader, like Mao. So in that time, there are no dialogue, no compromise, just I win, you lose. And they trust violence. They trust the very strong words, strong behavior, strong leader, a single voice. So sometimes happen now. I think history is full of deja vu, full of deja vu. Mm. Uh, even we talk about Russia, Soviet Union, in 1970s, when even after 19, there saw movement after the Stalin died, then the Khrushchev opened the kind of door and uh, for the Russian people, then Brezhnev, Brezhnev come back and try to control society again. And now Putin. Yeah. So it's a, like cycle. I think sometimes, I think politics a bit like fashion. <laughs> sometimes repeat, now 1970s again. So I think maybe because of psychology, you know, uh, Nick just mentioned he went to the uh, Oxford 1976, the year where I was born. So I mean, the different generation have the different psychological react to their. They always try to how to say against the last one. Maybe 1960s generation in the United States in the Western or enjoy free sex. Yeah. And LSD and marijuana, rock music, and the, to the 1970s and then the 80s, they went to Wall Street, mm. making, making money. Mm. So I mean, the, 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 it means generation shift. Mm. Now I think maybe during past 30 years, we cannot we trust the market force, we trust the freedom of everything, but now it's kind of back force, mm. and uh, because also because the economic growth made lots of New inequality, uh, something, someone very rich, someone very poor, the, the, the big gap, also facing a new global, now in Sydney, lots of Chinese move here. The globalization gives lo lots of opportunity, mm. but for some losers, mm. it can do nothing. Mm. They see these guys make money and move to different countries and very, lots of freedom. They want to against it. Mm. So, I mean, very typical, I mean, Gen yeah, yeah, decade change, these kind of things. Mm. Thank you. Can, can I ask about your work as a journalist mm -hmm. in, in China? Mm. Um, I'm interested in your readers. You know, who are they? Um, and what do they think about what you write? What kind of feedback yeah. do you get? Because you're quite critical of many things. Yeah, they all come tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know where, where you lived. Beijing, I'm Beijing, I'm Beijing. But you know, reading this book uh, without any knowledge, I thought he can't possibly be living in China. Mm. Actually, that uh, was my uh, uh, absolute strong reaction. Mm. I thought you lived in London. Mm. 
I mean, I did. So how, that relates mm. to your question, yeah. Nick. It's yeah. funny, it's both, thank you, Jean and Nick. <laughs> you know, during the past um, maybe more than five years, six years, all my books, all my books published in, in Taiwan, ah. the other China, or, ah. or you mean like in London. So uh, in, mainland, in mainland China, I was banned by the banned. Yeah, yes. authority. So I can't publish it within China, actually. And uh, actually, I seldom saw my own book, actually. <laughs> Maybe airport or this, this event, I saw my book. I seldom saw my books. Like, uh, so uh, it's funny that. Um, but uh, I think there are still lots of uh, readership within China there. I wrote some column for the overseas media, but they can read it. But I think it's not very uh, important for me um, because the first thing I try to do is just uh, self-expression because, because within China, still, still lots of suffocating atmosphere. Most time I feel very angry and uh, you can say angry and isolated. Write something, try to help, help myself to just kind of, even you can say like, if I don't read it in, within China, it's like kind of writing become kind of, maybe it's a bad word, sorry yeah, for that. Yeah, a masturbation. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, so sorry, uh, sorry for the word, but sometimes, sometimes, because, yeah, because there are no response from, no, from them. No, yeah, 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 yeah. But also because I'm a, I'm not just writer, I'm in, within China, in Beijing, I'm a kind of entrepreneur. Uh, I run several bookstores in Beijing, and uh, we have social media company. We got venture capital from the Silicon Valley, actually. So, so I must be much more cautious than an independent writer because, you know, in China, if you're doing business, you must be very low-key and can't say something louder. So for me, it's a, like a, a balanced game. So this you balance can't be make, controversial. No, but if you're in business. Yeah, I'm already controversial. You are yeah. controversial. <laughs> yeah. So still trying to be yeah, yeah had it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So pity that so I'm not brave enough, yeah, no. <laughs> Sorry. But I have the impression that you do believe in the power of writing and you're very interested in language and the way language can also be abused. Yeah. in certain political yeah. climates yeah. and words are redefined so they lose their meaning. Yeah. Um, but you're interested in, in language and the importance of keeping it fresh. Um, one of the essays, um, you, you, you visit Wenzhou, that mm. town that is famous for its kind of industry, but you visit the house of an old poet and talk about the way people of an earlier generation needed to craft a writing style, that's the phrase you use, to communicate with their world. And that seems to be something that you, um, quite special about what you're doing, that finding a way of writing that will actually communicate with this broad range of contemporary readers. And I wonder how you, how you got to that, how you got to the style, um, how you decided that this was what you would do as a writer, actually, the book, uh, my style in the book is not so good. Not so obviously. Maybe the other two books of mine, not translated English, but much better than this book. But thank you so much for Nick. Your uh, yeah, I'm so interested about the language because it's not from China's uh, influence, from the uh, George Orwell's influence. 
George Orwell wrote a famous essay in 1930s about the uh, 40s, language and the politics. A similar name, yeah. He talked about, he talk about uh, 1940s, there are lots of political propaganda even within Britain. Now how a writer be independent from the influence of the political propaganda and the language give you a fresh perspective, give you a individualistic viewpoint towards the world. It's the true nature of all kinds of, I think, arts, literature, anything, even love. I think that the distinguished characteristic, uh, perspective is the only thing you can provide to others, to yourselves. There's no kind of absolute truth, no kind of absolute solution, but your perspective is absolute. Try to find it. So it's my, yeah. And also because in China, there's lots of, because after so many years, uh, cultural, uh, rev, uh, social movements, revolution, propaganda, and the whole society and the culture becomes so homogeneous. Genist. So less and less individualistic thinking. I think in the Western world too, and too much, too much jargons. Yeah, yeah. How to find a new voice for your own? It's a self redemption. <laughs> yeah. It's authenticity, isn't it? Yeah. How to be authentic to yourself? Yeah, authentic, yeah. Yes. That's how I. Uh, yes. That's the word I would use. Yeah. yeah. Even the authenticity become a jargon now, so how to do it? No, that's right, so let's move on. (laughs) And you use the word um, individual or individualistic, which seems an important word for you, the value of the individual, the dignity of the individual, which can be crushed um, by the the state um, or even the bureaucracy, not just the political, not just the Communist Party in the case of China, but the bureaucracy that comes along with that. Uh, yes, not, not just the party, the bureaucracy, also peer pressure, social mm, pressure. Mm, yeah. I mean, I remember, Nick, uh, I remember a fantastic writer I love so much. as a Russian writer. How to pronounce? Uh, Herzen, is it? Uh, but no, 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 no. Herzen, Herzen. Herzen. Yeah, Alexander Herzen. Yeah, 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 quite right. Yeah. It's, a, it's a great Russian writer in the 19th century. You know, Russia is a was a dictatorship, uh, still now, yeah, yeah, still. And uh, this, uh, this writer, thinker like Herson, the emigrant to London, to, to Paris, the exile, kind of self-imposed exile, he said, he got so bored in London and in Paris. For what? They're a democratic country, they're much more freedom. He said, because in Russia, there's still lots of very strange Bizarre, complicated mind in Moscow, but in London, wow, we talk talk same thing, <laughs> speak same thing. It's kind of new. I mean, peer pressure and uh, less freedom. So I think for the human history, always very complicated. It don't means uh, you are a democratic country. Maybe you're free, freer. No, no, I don't think so. Maybe all the Australian, many of them love outdoors and uh, more activities. Maybe come up become a new social pressure for individual. Maybe I hate it. I hate the song. I hate the, I hate beach. It's fine. It's fine. But <laughs> now it's become a huge pressure for many people here. So I mean, the whole thing is very complicated. And, 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 and I never think maybe we Chinese, maybe and Nick and I talk about the Myanmar people, Burmese people, yeah. 
you know, Aung San his husband. Oh, it's fantastic. So, I mean, I mean, everyone, every country is the other mirror for other country. Don't be kind of be superior than other country or think, oh, I'm so comfortable. I mean, any comfortable situation is the, is the worst things for yourself. It means you're Wow, close mentality, these kind of things. So what we should do is just use your own experience perspective to stimulate, to, to crush, to penetrating, to stimulate yeah, others. I know we become a better person, more interesting person. No, maybe not better, worse is okay. <laughs> but more interesting, more complicated, more sophisticated things. Yeah. I don't know how much time we've got, um, Jean. Because I'm sure there are many questions and comments from the audience. Uh, uh, Emily, how am I on her time? I'm not sure. Um, five more minutes. Five more minutes, then Q&A. Okay. Um, I just want to ask, this is a, really a personal question for me. Um, I noticed you know, a number of times you went back to the events of 1989, yeah. Tiananmen in 1989, you know, when I was personally in China. And, yeah, and um, at one point you say you're talking about the Olympic Games and you say, doesn't every aspect of this situation relate back to the incident in 1989? Now, you were 12 or 13 then. Um, so what do you mean by going back to that point. It's a long time ago now. It's more than 25 years. Um, yeah. Why? I think it's a kind of searching. You know, in, like I mentioned the case, in Germany, before the 1968, seldom German talk about Holocaust. And uh, even the young generation want to talk about and the, the, the Nazi Germany, their parents don't want to talk, just don't want to talk. Then, then it started a kind of self-searching journey. You're searching on history, identity, what happened before. And for me, the true force moment, the truly kind of self-searching journey. My father was a military guy when the the, 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 the tragedy happened in Beijing. So even before 18 years, I, 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 went, I entered a Peking University, become a college student, I still truly believed what military government did is good for China. Because my father supported, my, my father military person. Then in college, I met lots of new friends. I watched why I sent a German bombing so much. He and his friends made a Tiananmen documentary. It was a wonderful, wonderful documentary, Tiananmen. A Korean student, so funny, because Korean, introduced me the documentary. You know, South Korean have long tradition of the fight with the government students. In the 1980s, all the South Korean students on the street made, making the Molotov cocktail as a bomb with the, with the government. So the Korean student introduced me to the documentary. So very interesting global story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it made me think again about how. Then I read, I travel to meet friends like um, uh, Professor Fong here. I think it's, it's 
start researching my memory, how to think about the event. And the, 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 the much, the much, the better, how to say, the more I, I, I read the material, the people I met, the deeper I think I, I found that the how the event shaped my life, my mentality. You know, now two, two episodes emerged in my mind. I, I told my girlfriend Shushu before, in 1989, Nick, you are there? I remember watching the TV, the TV, the CCTV, our major TV station here, like ABC here. Before the summer, I mean, before the Drew Force, on the TV, lots of episodes about, about the young boys and girls, young men, they are on the street, on the Tiananmen Square, and they use the bondage around the head, and they pro for the democracy, liberty, and the personal indignity. You try to devote themselves into the bigger thing, bigger event, and the whole society. It's one episode for me. And suddenly, the tragedy happened. I remember, I watched the TV again, maybe several, two months later. I watched what? A, document, a documentary from Taiwan. It's all about pop music, pop singer, sexy ladies and the boys. So it means the whole Zagast changed. In the 1980s, it means young men, young ladies, you should fight for justice, for something bigger than your life. Then suddenly, in the 1990s, you mean what? You should focus on celebrity, your private house, your private consumer goods. So you mean also means that politics is too dangerous for you. So everybody retreat from the public life into their private lives. So our generation is kind of anti-political, depoliticized processment. So now, my generation, now I'm 40, a younger, six, uh, 30 or 20 something, they even don't know how to talk about public events, how to talk about public spirit, the bigger thing, the political things. They don't know how to do. When they're facing it, it's just very dangerous or ugly or not interesting. Why not care about the celebrity, about the pop songs? So I think it's a, now I look back, I think the Tiananmen mask become kind of what, tr truly watershed for our generation. And also, I think that, Nick, I think you, you met lots of young students there. When, even them, they are in Tiananmen Square. But many of them, it's quite different from the South Korean students. In Guangzhou event, in, in Guangzhou in, in 1980, 80, zero, lots of South Korean was surprised by the uh, President Piao uh, government, but still many waves emerge. Mm -hmm. Until 1988, they got democracy at last. But in China, after the event, the generation experienced the Tiananmen tragedy. Many of them, the brightest of them, become a businessman, become a entrepreneur. They make a lot, huge money from the from Chinese economic growth that they don't want to talk about anymore. But I know there's still strong emotion inside them. If one day they are brave enough, they can feel percep percep 
prosthetic with themselves. Maybe they can speak out again. And that time will be a huge new moment for the whole society. Yeah, I hope one day will happen soon. And the professor phone tell me the day is coming soon. <laughs> I hope you are right. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, you so much. You. I talked too, too much. No, no, yeah, sorry, no, but um, um, but at that no, on that note, I think we should um, go to questions and comments from the audience. So, uh, is there a mic? Make sure. Is there a mic there, yes, Rebecca? Sophie's got it. Oh, Sophie's there. Um, if you want to ask a question in Chinese, if you feel more comfortable, I think please do, and we'll we'll manage to interpret as best we can. Um, but uh, there are plenty of people here who can do the b yeah. both languages. Yeah. Um, so, questions, comments? There's one, there are two here. Um, there's one behind you and then you're next. Hello. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, I'm Cyril Van Heist. Um, one question that has been uh, intriguing me, how China, you say it has 5,000-year-old tradition and so on, well, that's been shattered pretty well by, the, by Mao Zedong and his uh, henchmen. Um, it had great traditions of family and uh, Confucianism and so on. What, what, what holds Australian society together, to a lot, large extent, is sort of what we call civil society. Mm. This, what we're doing here, is part of civil society. Mm. It's got nothing to do with Canberra or the government or the military or the police or the thought police. How can you see this important piece of glue and, and cultural blossoming uh, fertilizer being able to work its way into uh, China, modern China, to, as, you know, from now on. Thank you. Civil society? Yeah. Yes. Uh, big question. I can give you a, a, a small background of this, uh, the debate of civil society in, within China. You know, the concept was interest, uh, in, introduced to China uh, in the early 1990s because uh, the German philosophy Habermas, Habermas serial, he, he used the serial to derive the modern enlightenment movement from the, the Fran France and Germany in late 19th century, the civil society, the public sphere, Chinese society, then come to the Eastern uh, Europe, European country from like Czech, Pol Poland, like uh, Václav Havel, they use the concept, Miknik used the concept. So this concept was introduced into China in the early 1990s. So during the past 20 years, two decades, until five, seven years ago, it's, it's inspired lots of Chinese intellectual, NGO uh, maker and, uh, and uh, intellectuals. Yeah. And also you can, uh, you can see the civil society become stronger and stronger during the past 20 years. Uh, partly because of market force, and uh, some people can make very semi-organization to do something and uh, uh, make some meeting. But five years ago, the party said the civil society is the wrong word. It can't practice in, practice in China. So this concept was totally banned on all the public debate and the media. And could, you, could you have a meeting like this in China now? Like, like we're doing? Yeah, we can talk about uh, architecture, literature, but uh, we can't talk about civil society. It's a totally big, will be buying so, uh -huh. But because even I say the state becomes stronger again during the past several years, but 
I can still still feel feel the new generation and the whole society become much more mature than before, and still lots of people try to do something about the civil society. I think civil society is a very abstract concept, but in essence, it's very simple. How to re how to interact interact with others, how to made collective mentality and uh, action. How do something together? How to make a meeting? So very simple. Actually, insights is very simple. Now I think still lots of boys, girls, young men and ladies try to do the things in China. Maybe in the short term it can, it can be a retreat, but in the middle term, long term, still will be prosperous. And uh, I think so. And I don't think China will be so exceptional from the global family. I think it still can can feel that kind of. The goal, the aim, well, try to reach. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, my name is Alex. Um, so I want to say thanks for your book, Shu uh, Xiangsheng. Um, before I read your book, I kind of hoped and believed that once the leadership in China changed, uh, things in China would be different and it'd be good. But then after reading your book, I kind of realized that uh, even if so that's a miracle. Uh, the Communist Party would change and um, overthrown or whatever. Uh, I don't think things would change as much because, like you said, the problem is in Chinese society. It's the people um, that even do they even want change is a question in itself. And because uh, I think there was one quote that you talked about about how um, there's a kind of a contract between the people and the government. How um, as long as the government allows them to keep, keep making money they would be good and happy, and things would be fine. And so my guess is that in the future, uh, if at some point when the people can't make money freely or economic growth stops, that may be a period of change. Um, I don't know. But my question is, how do you, like, what do you think in terms of how do you change a society, the people from being apathetic to change and only caring about materialism Although that materialism has been, is due to totalitarianism forcing them um, to that kind of lifestyle. Yeah, how do you change that? How do you um, yeah, in, like, catalyze that uh, societal change? Yeah, very. <laughs> yeah. How long have we got? <laughs> yeah, very hard to answer. But um, a simple answer is that actually, from very basic. Psychology. People will get bored. They were always bored to come to zone, kind of bored of the situation they have experienced. It's like the teenager try to against oppose their parents. People of the shifting. Uh, for me, yeah, you are right. Now the Chinese society, even the intellectual, actually. We don't have very clear blueprint for our future. It don't. It. I think most of even the best intellectual they don't have the clear idea about how the democracy will work in China. Maybe I think most people just try to be a okay, be a softer authoritarian country. It's fine. Don't be so harsh. I think it's a, the most people think like that. But you know. For the, all the dictators and authoritarian or totalitarian state regime, they never stop. 
They never, they, it, it, it don't know they are overstretched. They never think about So they, they keep grabbing, 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 and push everybody to the line again, again, again. You know, what you talk about is right. But you know, this year, during the, I think this year, some, some social mood is changing now. And the mood, some cases like Lei Yang, maybe you know, case happened. The middle class in China, before they said, I'm cautious, of, I, leave, I leave politics, I just focus on my, my career, my consumerism, my house, I'll be fine. But now, the public health system so bad. The air pollution so bad. I can't find a good school for my children. So I move to Sydney. So I come to Sydney. So lots of people come to Sydney. And also, even I do nothing wrong, but the policemen still can harass me. How to react it? Now I think that the new narrative is building now. Now the middle class know even I do nothing to harmful to the Communist Party, I'm still be harmed. Yeah, yeah, but still we're so vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You know, there's new concept about Chinese family, like a, a bubble family. Mm -hmm. Maybe my family, my girlfriend, maybe we are similar. We we family similar. We we can buy anything from the foreign land. Mm. Our baby food from Germany. Our air conditioner from the United States, mm. and uh, we use VPN to to serving on Google. <laughs> Everything you from the maybe a pseudo situation environment, but you still found your life always humiliated by the state, mm. by the government. Can I just yeah. uh, add something from my own personal point of view? Uh, my family left South Africa, as some of you know, in 1964. And our seminal moment, our Tiananmen Square, was yes. Sharpeville yes. in 1961. Um, and uh, my father, in 1961, after Sharpeville, said, we don't stay here anymore. Uh, it's gone too far. Yeah. Uh, the police came in and they used machine guns mm. to... Uh, kill. It was a mini, mini Tiananmen. And um, we came to Australia, and it's a long story. I won't go into that and went back. But my father said at that time, I give apartheid four years. That's in 1964. It can't last longer. They're pushing too hard. It will not last. There are 30 million Africans where there are 5 million whites. It can't last. They're pushing these people too hard. 40 years later, it fell apart, but it did fall apart. And... Um, that's my answer to your question. Yeah, yeah. Human being. Yeah, that's right. So, other questions? Yes. Many lives were lost in those 40 years. Sorry, yeah. Many lives, and many lives were ruined in those 40 years, yes. My name is Phoebe, Phoebe Alexander. Um, actually, I was born in Taiwan. So, I came to live in Australia for a long time. My question is we know that. Um, in China, you can't have regular meetings. Uh, for instance, Rotary does not exist in China because they have regular meetings. So even church, you know, you can't. Um, many of those things that in China, we talk about, you, you mentioned about civil society. 
how can you call a society that won't even allow an organization that is uh, like Rotary, who's doing good, good <laughs> for the community, volunteers? And uh, in China, there are many, many restrictions. People can't have regular meetings. You, you don't have the right to protest. Uh, all those things are combining. We can see the, from the outside, we can see it's like boiling. It's slowly coming to a boil. But how long will it take for South Four Africa? Forty years. Four yeah. or forty years. In your view, when you live there, you can see all this. It must be very frustrating. Yet every time we think, "Oh, something's going to happen," something goes happen. Yet it didn't. And with Xi Jinping coming to work, lots of people think feels it's going to be change. It's time to change. Do you feel the changing is coming along? I think you mentioned lots of restriction, but like the teenager boys, girls try to date with dating with each other. Maybe your parents restrict many things you can't do, but you can sneaking out to do something. I think all the experience in China too, and I think all the society you mentioned Taiwan in Taiwan in the 1970s, 80s. I think the KMT government. Try to surprise the civil society. You can't do this. You can't do that. And many my friends from Taiwan, they use they they, they made the I I mean the Danwei magazine is like distant magazine. Even they always all always uh, always surprised by the government, but they still try to print a magazine. So I think similar thing happened in China. Maybe not so brave as Taiwan in 1970s because uh, Communist Party is much stronger than KMT actually in, in Taiwan. And the, She's, yeah, lots of people think maybe something will change several years ago, but we know they did change, but change worse than before. This kind of change. And so in the coming future, I, still, I can still feel the, the new mood, the new psychology, it's a new pattern is emerging. Maybe now it's very weak. But you know, Every revolution, before revolution or every change happened, nobody knows it will happen. You know, before the 1789, nobody in, in, in Paris, Paris think about something will change it, because economic growth very high and the, the whole society very prosperous. Even in, even in Bastille prison, only 13 people in prison now. It's not a big story, big, big, big shock. Before the uh, 19... 1989 in Berlin, nobody nobody think about what happened, a change. Even in Roma, Romania, the Ceausescu era. So I mean, the human, why the human study and the human story is so fascinated? Because it's truly unpredictable. Absolutely. It gives a meaning. <laughs> it give a give us uncertainty. 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 Also, kind of hope. So it's it's our story. Yeah. Yeah. Nick, two more questions, I think. Huh? Uh, just let's see. Uh, Tan and Janine, help me with it. Ten to eight. Ten to eight. I think two more. Hi, I've got a question here. Just Go picking on. up on that last point, there was uh, there are a number of economists who predict that if the GDP turns down in China, that this kind of social unrest will come to a fore. Like the predictions were 7% GDP. If the country falls below that, the middle classes will... Um, 
uprise mm. in some way? It, might it be linked to this new middle class and their economic expectations, do you think? Uh, the question is whether the, if the Chinese economy goes down, mm -hmm. will that be a, um, a catalyst for change or, or um, protest, particularly amongst the new middle class? Their expectations mm. a, a, a bit, but, but not so important. Because, you know, what's the, long, what's the last thing of the Mao, Mao Zedong's Mao's legacy for China is that we have a truly, Nick know everything about it, we have a truly dark age just 40 years ago. Everything is so bad. So the, for the lots of Chinese, maybe now it's not so good, but still better than Mao era. It's a still provide a strong legitimacy, and also in China maybe the mentality very important. I mean, for most Chinese, after generation and generation, even before the Communist Party get seize the power, people have a strong mentality that any quarrel, any protest is means chaos, and the chaos is so bad. We must evade from the chaos. So I don't think the kind of economic slump can be a very strong impetus. Even lots of people said, okay, China facing the economic declining, maybe I'll become a new capitalism for the change. I don't think so. In the Mao era, even today's North Korean, the economy is so bad. So what? It's a famine. It's a great famine. So what? But I trust the human struggle, I mean the internal struggle within the party, all these kind of things. I think in, in, this, in China or similar country, all this change comes from the internal struggle. Then now Chinese society is quite different than before. We have kind of, maybe not strong enough civil society, but still quite good. Maybe something will happen. And then I also trust today's world. Today still maybe a bit optimistic, but still I think quite different from the one century ago. I mean the basic concept of human rights, our freedom, be part of life, maybe not strong enough of everyday life of Chinese people now. Quite different from one century ago or six six decades ago. So I still have strong yeah belief on it. Sounding a lot more optimistic in this optimistic. chair than in the book, yes. I have to say. <laughs> yeah, in short term, Having pessimistic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, should we try one more? If there's one more. One more. Um, oh. I, I think that optimistic note is a good it's note a good to, to end on. So. You say you're ambivalent, and <laughs> I'm sure you are, but that means you're partly optimistic. And so that's. Uh, before that's we close and thank our speakers, I want to thank Sophie Holbast, who has been. This is about the third or fourth gathering, civil society gathering we've had in the last two weeks. We had one on South Africa in relation to the film. Uh, we had. Um, uh, a, a performance two Saturdays in a row uh, here uh, tonight, and what else? So I don't know. We're all. Yeah, this is the last one. This is the last one in this little phase. But Sophie has organised it all with impeccable efficiency, and please just put your hands together for her first. <laughs>
And now, a very loud uh, uh, sort of round of applause for the two of them. And, uh, thank you, Jean. Thank you, Nick. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Thanks yeah. so much.